You sound exhausted. Uh, I'm not that tired, actually. I'm less tired than I was yesterday for the stream. We're recording this uh, the day after we did it. We did a stream. Uh, so this week, we, we this week, this month, <laughs> uh, imply, God, if this were a weekly podcast, I would just die. <laughs> um, this month, we watched uh, Millennium Actress, directed by Satoshi Kone. Uh, so Alex, uh, did you enjoy this movie? Almost! It was so close to being good. No! Uh, um, like, I appreciated parts of it, it's beautiful, but, well, the, what I didn't, what, what, what disappointed me was, like, the last minute, almost, so <laughs> we should, we should wait until we okay, we'll talk about the movie before I complain. We'll get there, because I, it is no secret, I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, this is my favorite thing that we've watched so far. I knew I loved this movie going in. I came out of it being like, yep, that was a, yeah, a good-ass movie. Um, so, Millennium Actress is a movie about um, a directory, a, a, a directory, a documentary, documentary film crew, which is uh, this this like film director, interviewer, presenter dude, uh, and his just just exasperated cameraman, uh, <laughs> who uh, go to interview this retired actress. She hasn't been in any movies for a really long time, but she was like a huge star in like the twentieth century. Um, and she so this movie is like loosely based on the careers of some actual uh, Japanese. Uh, actresses. Uh, oh, the Wikipedia article says Setsuko Hara and and Hideko Takamine. Uh, I don't know who either of those people are, Me but either. this movie is is loaded with like Japanese film references, and mm-hmm. I only understand one of them. And we will get to it. <laughs> okay. uh, we, we will get to it. Um. So yeah. So like the the movie begins with this sort of I guess a taste of what the entire thing is, which is like it begins sort of in a film, but you don't know that it's in a film, of of a woman sort of who is who is the uh the the actress, uh Chiyoko. She is like in a in a rocket ship. She gets in a rocket ship and she takes off and then it's reve- it, we sort of pull out and it's revealed that like they're in uh like a studio and they're watching that and, and the director of the of the documentary is watching that on on a TV and they're they're like packing up their gear and they're ready and they drive out to the actress's house, and she lives like way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and right. the intro, the intro is is beautifully shot and beautifully edited, and the music is incredible. Um, it's it's really really good. Oh yeah, um, no, I will I will never deny that this is a gorgeous movie. Yeah, it's it's um, it's, it's it's beautiful. So um, and like like I want to, I'll probably do this several times, but I do want to draw special attention to the editing in this movie because it's immaculate. Uh, it is incredible, unbelievably stylish. Um, like the way that this movie is, is put together. Um, and it's a great example of like what makes Satoshi Kon unusual as an editor and what makes him and like, like, cause he's talked in interviews about how he didn't want to direct live action because he couldn't 
cut as fast in live action as he wanted to and uh-huh. that he can in animation. So, like, a great example of this. So, like, I was introduced to Satoshi Kon via a video on the YouTube channel, uh, the now defunct YouTube channel, Every Frame of Painting. Um, he has a video essay about this, about Satoshi Kon's filmography. And he pointed out um, something that... So, like, there's a, a, a scene in the very, very early on in the movie where... Uh, they're like walking up a hill to uh, Chiyoko's house, and mm-hmm. the camera makes some comment, um, and I don't remember exactly what it is. It's, it's some like vaguely sort of denigrating comment about Chiyoko, and uh, the director just like throws a camera bag at him and hits him right in the face. <laughs> um, and that's a great example because that. The, it like does this like really really quick insert of the bag flying at his face, and that's the kind of thing that you can only do in animation because literally the only thing in that frame is like a blurry background and the bag. Whereas like if you were to cut, if you were to do that cut in live action, you, it would ha- necessarily have to be longer because you can't just draw less if you're directing, uh, if you're if you're shooting things in live action. But you can just right. draw, you can just draw the thing that you're supposed to be looking at. And Cone does this all the time. Um, is just like sort of drawing less information in the frame. To make sure your eyes are only looking where you're supposed to be so we can cut faster. Um, so anyway, moving on. So they, they get to the house and they meet um, they meet Chiyoko. Uh, and they start they start interviewing her about about her life. And and the, the interview sort of starts with um, the director. He he pulls out this box and it has this key in it. And she looks at the key and it like brings back a bunch of memories and she starts talking about uh, her youth. What's uh, the director's name? Because his it might be name is uh, his name is I have it written down, but I can't read my own handwriting. His name is Tachibana. Okay, Tachibana. Because uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we we meet another director later on. Yes, so we meet another be, director later on. So yeah, so he, to keep those separate. Yeah, and I don't know if he's actually an interview director. He might just be a presenter. Like the Wikipedia article says that he's just a, a presenter, but I'm not. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem like he ever made his own films yeah um but yeah he uh anyway. yeah he's he's a presenter and he uh so his 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 name is tachibana and his, his cameraman's name is is kyoji okay. uh, <laughs> uh, and i don't the, the wikipedia article says his name is kyoji i didn't i was trying to write down everybody's name i didn't notice him ever say his name or anybody ever say his name i mean because he's just there to kind of roll his eyes at the yeah he's just there to like roll his eyes and be the straight man and it's very it's very good their dynamic is great um Um, anyway so she gives him he gives her the key and um that kind of starts her down her kind of reminiscences yeah and it's it's very interesting how it begins like it starts with uh a very brief reminiscence about when she was first approached to be an actress by some producer and her mother didn't want her to and then it cuts to her uh her being teased by um some no that was i'm getting the order wrong anyway it it transitions seamlessly into her helping a um a soldier escape from which war was that uh, that was, would have that would have been the sort of pre World War Two imperial stuff that uh, Japan was that Japan was doing in like Manchuria, and I don't remember okay, what that okay, war was called, right, but right, it was so, that. Yeah, so she she helps this soldier uh, escape some police, and he tells her he gives her 
what we I don't find... even think he's a soldier. He's I think he might just be a draft dodger. Oh yeah? Yeah, okay. because, and, and also they describe him as an anti-government painter. Oh yeah, he was an activist. Um, yeah, yeah, he was an activist. So he and, yeah, then, he and he tells her to meet her or that he'll be in Manchuria if she ever Yeah. Comes you know, to meet him just again. in Manchuria. You know. Uh, you know, Manchuria. You'll you'll just it, find me there. Um, and then the so, interesting yeah. thing is that that scene ends up or transitions into or is simultaneously her first film yes so this is the thing that this movie is doing um and you get sort of like a little taste of this in the scene where um uh the producer or like the movie uh production guy is arguing with chiyoko's mom about letting her be an actress where it's a it's a flashback scene but um tachibana and kyoji are physically in the space moving around and like nobody in the flashback interacts with them but they're physically there and they can look around and they they react to stuff and that's sort of like the gimmick of this movie is that it is sort of blending the sort of present context of like the interview and like the documentary that they're making with the actual historical past of what happened to chiyoko with the films that chiyoko was in exactly um and like cutting between them sort of seamlessly but not in a way that i that is confusing more in a way that is just really fun yeah like, it's, it's, it, 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 it's really yeah it's it's really clever it's a joy to watch it is an and, absolute and it, joy to watch and it and it and it's um and it serves a purpose to the narrative because yeah. as we'll see later um chiyoko's life is inseparable from her movies yeah and so her, her life is almost, I want to say, a reflection of the movies rather than vice versa. But we'll yeah. get to that. They they sort of they sort of push and pull off of each other in interesting ways, and it becomes like difficult to tease apart like what what sort of begets what yeah. Uh, yeah. in her yeah. life. Um, so yeah, so like this this interaction that she has with this like revolutionary or like a like activist painter guy in this like shed. Um, where he gives her the key to the most important thing there is, um, sort of becomes this albatross around her neck for the rest of her life. Um, and she decides to become an actress because their next movie is being filmed in Manchuria. Um, and there's this, there's this wild cut, um, where, or this wild, like, sequence of cuts where it cuts from... Um, Chioko, Chioko's younger self on the train platform in, which is like revealed to be a film, but also maybe something that actually happened, um, or, or, or a sort of a fictionalized version of a thing that happened to, uh, 70 year old Chioko in her living room. And then like a split second later, a cut to young Chioko again on the dock. And it is the most like joyfully disorienting sequence of cuts (laughs) I've ever, I've ever seen. It's great. Um, it's, it's so, so good. But at no, at no point does, does it ever become like completely, I mean, it's, you said disorienting, but like, it makes sense. Oh um, yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. Like I, I say disorienting, like it, it is disorienting in, in the most fun, most sensible yeah, way yeah, possible yeah. of, of just like, oh, I understand why they are doing this. Of just like, because it's, it's. But at no it's point a, does it not make sense. Yeah, at no point does it not make sense. Like it, it's a very like it's a very like 
filmic way of telling this story yeah Yeah. um and a sort of also like very like animated filmic way of telling the story like this movie takes full advantage of the medium that it's in to tell the story that it's telling um which is part of the reason why i just love it so much oh no yeah Um, like i i deeply appreciate the 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 technical yeah it's yeah because it's it's a very straightforward story and if it were told straightforwardly, it would be quite boring. Yes. But because it's told, <laughs> but because it's told in this way, it winds up being. I, I think it winds up being more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so yeah, so she goes to uh, Manchuria to shoot this movie, and she and while on the boat there, she meets uh, like the managing director's son, who is an asshole, um, mm-hmm. and this older actress. Who's not like significantly older? She's like in her twenties, but like Chioko at this point is like you know fifteen. Right. Um, so this this older sort of more experienced actress who just like immediately fucking hates her, uh, hates Chioko, <laughs> yeah. uh, and Chioko is like way too naive to even notice. Um, yeah. Which we I mean we learn it's it's just jealousy over her yeah. youth and potential and blah blah. blah yeah, and blah. so they go to to Manchuria and they shoot this this uh, they they're like shooting this scene. Um, and it's, it's all sort of like, assume that whenever we describe anything happening, it is, it is woven together with like reality and fiction in the most sort of compelling and seamless way possible. Um, (laughs) Which is very hard to describe in a podcast. It's it's hard to describe in a podcast. Like you really like, I think most of these movies you can have, you can just listen to this podcast and not most of these things that we watch, you can just listen to this podcast and not necessarily have to have watch the movie well, but if you, most if you... of them are no good anyways <laughs> <laughs> yeah but this, this one is is worth watching though yeah you should watch this movie um so yeah so she so they, they're shooting this scene in manchuria and um they managed to get this like really incredible performance out of out of chiyoko despite the fact that she's an amateur because like the plot of the film they're making mirrors the plot of her life really mm. directly yeah. um and so the older actress gets uh, tell, tells her, it's sort of revealed later that this was a trick, um, but tell, and tells her, like, oh, well, you're never going to find this dude just, like, wandering around in Manchuria. You should talk to a fortune teller. Um, <laughs> right. And so they go to this fortune teller, and she, she tells this fortune teller, like, I'm looking for a guy. And the fortune teller is like, does this guy happen to be, happen to be looking for a key? And she's just like, <laughs> yeah, and he's tall and he paints. Um, and the the fortune teller is just like oh he i i know where he is you need to do this and so she gets on a train um to to where the fortune teller said that he was which is not told to the audience um like this is another cone thing is like stuff that's not information that would be relevant to the characters or things that happen that would be relevant to the characters but are not relevant to the audience are just just cut yeah. Um, and well, I mean, just, that's just that's just, yeah. that's just good filmmaking. Yeah, it's just good filmmaking. It's just like, but he does he does it like uh, I didn't mention this when we were watching Paprika, but like uh, there's a, a when uh, when J Jonah Jameson and, and Paprika first meet in the like internet bar and mm-hmm. they like take their order and then it immediately cuts to them having the glasses and and clinking them. Like that uh, is a yeah. sort of characteristic Satoshi Kone move mm-hmm. of just like mm-hmm. you don't care about the stuff that happens in between here. Let's just get a cool cut out of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So now she's on a train, um, heading out to where um, 
to where this this mystery artist is with to give to give him the key, and the train is assaulted by bandits. So, uh, but, so when uh, the older actress told her about the fortune teller, did she feed him that line about the key? Or yes. Okay, and I so think just... that, that's, that's the implication later, is that, like, basically she found this fortune teller and was just like, hey, a woman's going to come to you later and ask you about a, a guy who's looking, uh, ask you to find a guy. If you just, like, say, oh, is he looking for a key, she'll, like, totally believe you, and then you just tell her this bullshit. And then, so she's just trying to kind of get her to be, go be so reckless that they fire her, essentially? I think she's trying to get her to be so reckless that she gets on a train in, war, in like, warring Manchuria and then gets murdered by bandits. Oh, okay. Uh, because that's, that's basically what happens. And then um, she... Sur- end, end of the movie, she dies. End of the movie, she dies. No, she clearly survives. And then we sort of have this incredible transition from the sort of very s- semi-literal, uh, bio- mostly biographical stuff, into this, like, great montage of um, of movies that Chiyoko was in, like, in her sort of burgeoning career. And so she gets on the train, and she's, like, trying to force open the door of the train, and then she, go, she like, forces her way through, and then they stumble their way out onto this, like, Japanese classic-ass wooden castle thing. <laughs> um, and this is where the only reference in this movie that I understand comes in, because uh-huh. that first movie that they, that they stumble their way into is a direct reference to the Akira Kurosawa film Throne of Blood. Uh-huh. Um, it is an extremely obvious reference to Throne of Blood. Um, so if you've never seen it, uh, one you I, should. I have not. Okay. Um, it is uh, it is an adaptation of Macbeth. Um, oh. And the two really obvious things that make this an adaptation of Macbeth are like because uh, like it's super obviously a Kurosawa homage because it's like very uh, like very like his kind of thing, especially like stuff like Throne of Blood and Seven Samurai, like the kind of like uh, Sengoku Jidai kind of kind of stuff that Kurosawa, that Kurosawa did. Um, but, uh, there's a, as soon as they stumble out onto that balcony, uh, the cameraman is sort of assaulted with a volley of flaming arrows. And that is a direct reference to the scene at the end of Throne of Blood, where, uh, there, where that movie's, uh, Macbeth is murdered by having a bunch of archers shoot arrows at him in exactly the same way. Uh-huh. Um, and fun fact about that scene from Throne of Blood, um, those that was not like faked in any way, shape, or form. Those were just ch- trained archers trying to look like they were trying to kill Macbeth. Holy shit. <laughs> and trying their best to not kill him. Like, those are all real arrows Jesus being shot Christ. at him. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that seals that as being a Throne of Blood reference is this sort of motif that this this introduces of this, this like, old woman with, like, a spinning wheel. Saying oh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yes. So that is a reference to Throne of Blood. Um, so she, it, she crops up over and over. Yes, so it's movie. not just a reference to Throne of Blood, because in Throne of Blood, she plays the role of the Weird Sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for Shakespeare, the Weird Sisters are a reference to the fates. But the Japanese, especially at the time that Throne of Blood was made, didn't wouldn't have known, like a general Japanese audience would have, wouldn't have known what the three fates were. Um, right. So they re- so Kurosawa replaced the reference to the fates with a reference to this classic like no theater play and no theater is this um japanese theater tradition um that is sort of like very and that massively influenced kurosawa and also a lot of japanese cinema of like uh it's sort of largely dialogueless everybody's wearing these like big cartoonish masks and it's this sort of gesture-based theater Uh um 
And uh, so it's it's a reference to a specific no play called uh, Adachi Gahara. Uh, and Adachi Gahara is a uh, is a play about some priests who are like going through the woods and they need a place to rest and they find this old woman who is who like just has this house out in the middle of the woods and they're like and she's like oh great you can stay with me but don't look in the closet um, and the priests are like seems legit um so they go into the house <laughs> and and uh and that and like this this old woman like sits at a spinning wheel and she spins the wheel for a while and she says a bunch of cryptic shit um and is like generally really creepy and the priests are like this still continues to seem legit um and so one of the priests obeys obeys the woman's the woman's directive and lays down to bed and the other priest is like something about this seems fishy uh and so he goes and he looks in the closet and it's full of human bones oh like, no it is, it is just full of dead bodies and they flip their shit and they and he wakes up the other priest and is like holy shit this old woman is obviously an onibaba we need to get out of here um so, so yeah, so that's where, uh, where that woman with the spinning wheel comes from is this <laughs> is, it is a sort of like double reference because th the general Japanese audience would be familiar, at least indirectly through cultural osmosis with Adachi Gahara. Um, uh. and that's why it was used in Throne of Blood and Throne of Blood is at least partly why it was used in Millennium Actress because that whole sequence yeah. is a super obvious Throne of Blood reference. And, at, at, and then at one point, and then the the that old woman is um, kind of compared to the older actress. Yes. Uh, um. at the, when she when she first meets this old lady, she, the old lady tells to Chiyoko, the young actress, the millennium actress, the millennial, <laughs> if you will, the millennial actress. Like so, what, I, I forget the exact line, but something about like how much I hate you and how much I love you. Yes. And then the older actress says something similar, just like how she was kind of torn between admiration and jealousy. And Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, like, that, that woman with the spinning wheel comes to sort of represent, like, her, like, Chiyoko's sort of endless, impossible search for this dude. And also, like, like the sort of hatred of the older actress of her. And, like, sort of all of the, like, negative things haunting Chiyoko's life. Maybe a um, few too many things in one a, ghost. A tiny too many, <laughs> tiny bit too many things in one ghost. Um, but it does sort of keep, keep reappearing. And I think, I do think it is a, an effective sort of visual way to convey like a whole uh, like a bunch of sort of complicated feelings complicated but generally negative feelings that chiyoko has um yeah. and so like every every time it comes up and like this is one of the ways in which the movie takes advantage of being animated and of its sort of very abstract style is that like whenever something's happening um where chiyoko is reminded of of like her her uh, fruitless search for this man this, this old lady spinning the wheel pops up again um, uh, yeah yeah so it's it, it becomes a sort of recurring motif and it, it is uh and there are a lot of recurring motifs in this movie and like there's a sequence at the at the end which we'll get to uh where it sort of brings all of them up and it also reminds me of of kurosawa and of no theater and of of this tradition of like because i think kurosawa would do all the time for his for his uh when he was directing actors would tell would tell them to just like okay you're gonna pick 
a single gesture for your character and you're going to repeat it throughout the film so that like your character comes to be associated with that gesture. And so like, even if your their back is to the camera, you know, you can do that gesture again and it reminds the audience like, Oh, this is that character. And that's like a classic <laughs> no feeder thing is like certain characters Cause like no theater is built on specific archetypes that are, it's very much like Greek, like classical Greek theater where like you have these different archetypes that are played by different kinds of masks. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the sort of key no element is that certain characters are also associated with certain kinds of gestures, mm-hmm. um, and with certain sort of stereotypical gestures and and and, and things like that. Um, so like, and one of them is is there's a sequence near the end of the movie where it cuts together all of the different shots of Chioko uh, running in a huff, and all of the shots of Chioko <laughs> getting knocked over. Um, uh... Uh, and 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 because like you you sort of start to con- at at some level of consciously notice, um, like all of like the times that Chioka gets knocked over and the fact that she gets knocked over in pretty much the same way every single time, um, <laughs> like she like she falls over the animation is basically the same she's just wearing different clothes uh, yeah. and then cut and then it makes it really really sort of obvious. Um, when it cuts all of those together and it's just like look at this she's <laughs> her life is repeating itself. <laughs> um, you know, it is an endless cycle, right? Yeah, and because, and in effect, like all the movies she she's in are the same thing. Like yes, this woman looking for some man. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So like. So we we go through this this sort of very fun montage of a bunch of of Chioko's films, and that's uh, the, a good kind of middle third of the movie. Is the is yes. these is this, mon- is this montage? Yeah. Um, and, and this is where, um, uh, Tachi, Ta- Tachibana, um, becomes not just a spectator, uh, but actively participates, is during the Throne of Blood scene, where right, he, like, right, runs up right, the stairs right. and he's dressed in this, like, samurai outfit, and the cameraman <laughs> is like, Jesus Christ. Um. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, it's very, it's very good. Um, and he, he's like, I'll save you, Chiyoko. Yeah. And then they both run down the stairs and they get on horses and they're like running through and they're just like murdering dudes um, right. on, on horseback. Um, it's very good. And then it like, cu- and then there's a great moment where it just like cuts back to reality and it's just like, and it, <laughs> yeah, and it's just like Tachibata Tachi just like with this like just the samurai helmet on just like shouting in the living room and and Chiyoko is like pretending to ride a horse on her couch and the cameraman is just standing there and is just like what the fuck is going on yeah. <laughs> so yeah as she is telling her story and getting so into it he's he starts joining in and they yeah start doing their little LARPing. Yeah, they're just LARPing in the living room, you know, and then there's like this moment where they like realize what they're doing and then he just sort of like takes off the samurai helmet and dejectedly hands it to Chiyoko's like maid. <laughs> just like, here, take this. I have no need yeah. for it anymore. Um, uh, so yeah, so the, the sort of montage is just like this all of these different movies that all mirror this same sort of aspect of Chiyoko's life of this sort of search for this man and even specific sub elements like uh, like being being stopped by like military police and like specific characters from her from her the past. Evil, the evil stepmother. The evil stepmother. And like all the, yeah, and all of these sort of like archetypes keep reappearing in her films yeah. that sort of were important to her in her younger life. Yeah. Um, and so then. 
um, we sort of see that uh, Tachibana, when he was younger, was an assistant at the the at, at Jinai, Jinai. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, oh. Studios, the studio that was that produced uh, Chioko's films, um, and she. And that's why he's so in love with her. And that's why he's so in love her. with her movies. Yeah, like like she, he had. <laughs> not, that's not no with her. With her, yeah, <laughs> with her specifically, and also her movies generally, but also her specifically. Um, and then we get sort of one of the uh, a sort of early sort of dramatic beat is where Chioko loses uh, her key. She loses the the key that the, the key to the most important thing that there is that yeah. was given to her by the artist man. Um, and they they look everywhere for it and they just can't find it and so she decides that she's going to marry the director's son that she met earlier who right so so he like this whole time he had been kind of constantly hitting on her yeah and she's Uh, just like fucking fine and so once she loses the key she kind of figures she's lost like the man it's attached to and she kind of gives up in a sense uh, and she, yeah, and she marries, marries that. Yeah. Scumbag. And there's a very good, there's a very good bit where they're like sitting on a balcony looking over at the sea and this fucking douchebag just comes over and he's just like, you know, a film director is sort of like a painter. Uh, <laughs> and he's God, like, yeah. and, he, and he says, a painter chooses the colors to put on their canvas. I've just found a magnificent color for my canvas. It's you. And then Tachibana is is just like, he seduced her with a line like that? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, so like, like, like we mentioned before, how he and the cameraman are kind of like in these yeah, yeah. memories. So he's there like yeah, chomping at the bit. Try, he, wants, he wants to go beat the shit out of this guy. Yeah, and he, the cameraman's he, holding him back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it, it, so... Yeah, it's very. We good. find uh, out she didn't that the the key was stolen by the older actress um, because she was so jealous of her and her kind of youthful faith in in this man and and I think I think this line about her, how how that kind of hope of meeting him and that kind of yearning kept her young. Um, and that was all wrapped up in the older woman's jealousy. Yeah. Uh, and so the truth comes out, and she basically immediately le- leaves the director. <laughs> yes, she immediately is just like, I... So she, she like, she immediately leaves the director. She walks out, because they're, like, in the studio at that point. She walks out in, like, the front yeah. room of the studio, and there's this dude there. Yes, And she looks yes. at him, and is and, and is immediately just gets really mad and tells him to go away. And he's just like, listen, I have, uh, I have important an important thing to tell you. I, and he's and he it sort of like dawns on the audience uh, at this point that he is the the sort of cop that arrested um, her the painter artist. her her artist her man yeah. uh, and he basically says I fucked up uh, I did a bad thing I was he says I was as evil as the people who were directing me or something like that um, like just completely oh, owns I up for- I forgot that part yeah he just like completely owns up. To just being like, man, I really fucked up. I'm sorry I was a fascist asshole. Um, And he's like, I was, I am on a tour of of atonement. And he pulls out this, like, letter that uh, the artist wrote while he was in prison. um, And gives it to Chioko, who reads it. 
um, and then immediately runs out of the studio. Um, and then through a, a series of, uh, and then like, that's when we get that sort of montage of all of the scenes of her running in a huff. Oh, um, right, right, right. Uh, because yeah. Because it's, it's just like sort of cutting, cutting through like all of these things is just like. Cause she's finally living what she had been kind yeah. of performing this time of, of the last mile before she finds the man. Yeah. I've running uh, after him. And so she knows that he's from Hokkaido and so she goes and gets on a train to Hokkaido. Um, the, 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 like the same, like we, we kind of get the same shot at the very first movie when she was chasing after the train yes. that he got on. Yes. But now she's chasing after the train to get him. onto it. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so there's tons of stuff. It's like cutting between uh, all, her, her movies. all of her movies, all of her movies that have this scene in them of her sort of running in a huff and her being knocked over and all of the, like this specific like scene of her just like chasing after this guy. Um, and then she gets on the train, and then we get a call back to her getting the the bandits raiding the train, um, in uh, in like the, the the beginning of the movie where, oh, right. but it but it turns out that the train was just sort of stopped by a rock slide, and so she gets off the train, and then she like runs through the woods, um, and like manages to make it to Hokkaido. And at this point, like the the editing and like the sort of blending is getting really intense. It's cutting between a bunch of her different movies. And now it started to sort of integrate that, um, that movie where from the very beginning where she's going into space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it cuts to that and sort of like cuts her between trudging across yeah, the moon. Yeah. It cuts between her trudging through the snow in Hokkaido and her trudging, uh, on the moon in this movie. Um, and she essentially, she essentially, because the audience learns um, that 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 the painter was tortured and killed during the war and has not been alive this entire Wait, time. Wait, that's come, that comes up later. That um, comes up later. Yeah, it comes up l- later at the um, near the very end. So, well, okay, we we know now. So, um, so what? Oh, but the, what the audience knows at the time is that she finds, or it's 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 vague because it becomes very artistic. But she comes to a hill that where she had always imagined him painting, and there's or appears to be an easel there with a yeah, painting with him inside cause, it. Because that's one thing that we forgot to mention about the his her original meeting with the artist is that he says that he's going to, he has this painting, he's carrying a painting with him and he says he's going to finish it when he gets back home. Um, and he wants to where, and where he's from, you know, it's, it's really snowy when it, during the winter and he wants to go out in the winter and finish the painting when he's so cold that it hurts. Oh, right. right, right. Um, so that's why she runs out to Hokkaido and runs out into the middle of the woods. Um, yeah. And so then, yeah, then she finds no one there and yeah. then we cut back to the present. So yeah, so then we get uh it's sort of it's sort of unclear what happens directly after that, but what is clear is that Chioko eventually returns back to the studio and begins working on movies again. Um Oh and, right, right. Yeah, um or uh it, it's sort of unclear like in what order these things happen, but what happens next is some sort of more development of uh Tachibana's like role at the the, the movie studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, and specifically talking about, um, this time that there was an earthquake and like earthquakes are another motif in this movie. Like there's an earthquake at the beginning of the movie. 
Um, mm-hmm. Like right when they get to to Chiyoko's house and she says that, oh, I was born during an earthquake. Um, and so naturally she will die during an earthquake. Right. And um, and so there's another, so there's this, this huge earthquake at the studio and it starts like tearing down the studio and Tachibana uh, like runs over to where Chiyoko is because Chiyoko is like strapped into this like huge prop spaceship filming the, the movie that we saw in the first yeah. shot of Millennium Actress, the film. Um, and so she's struggling to get out and like the roof is collapsing and Tachibana like throws himself on top of her because a bunch of debris falls on the, the prop spaceship and buries both of them and they, mm-hmm. they get pulled out of there and she, and then like in suddenly um, it, like it, it cuts back to, to the, to the, uh, to the present and Choco is like, Oh, why I, I feel very bad for not recognizing somebody who saved my life. Uh, yeah. Um, and it, and that, and it turns out that's when he got the key because yes. it, it, it fell off her neck in the collapse. Yeah. And she runs and then, away and leaves the key and, behind. And then so, I think that's when she retires from filmmaking. Yeah, so something what why did she run away? Uh it's sort of I think it's sort of unclear. The Wikipedia summary literally says she runs away inexplicably. Okay, I I felt when I watched it I understood why. Um but now I've forgotten. Anyway, he sees yeah, the it, key it, there. It's, it's a very thing. It's a, it's a kind of thing. Like I definitely, when I watch it, like I understood exactly what was happening, but it's a very, like it's, it feels very emotionally true in the moment. <laughs> and then later, if you were asked to justify it plot wise, it'd be like, I don't know if I could justify that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that, that's how we learned how he got the key. And that's when she finally retired um, from filmmaking, from um, acting uh, yeah. for good. And then, is that when we get another earthquake, or yeah, does something we, happen in we between? We come back to the present, and then another earthquake strikes during this this whole conversation that they're having right at the end of the interview, and Chiyoko has a heart attack. Um, but the same thing happens where Tachibana protects yes. her from from falling debris. Yes, it's, it's this whole callback, like the, some debris falls from the roof of her house, and he jumps on her, and it's it's a whole yeah. thing. Um, and they de- they like they go to the hospital. And they get told, like, she's not going to make it. This is when we get the flashback of when, after after that soldier t- gave her the letter from her artist and she ran off to find him in Hokkaido, then uh, Tachibana stayed back and heard the guy say... Yes, right, that's where it is. I, I, I tortured him, and yeah. in the end, I killed him. Which, yes. is, a, which is right then such a punch to the gut yes because you learn that this the purpose of her life which has been pursuing this guy what was futile the entire time yeah it was he she was never gonna find him because he was dead um he was dead the whole time uh and and so then then she's on her deathbed and she she says to to um to Tachibana and Kyoji, Kyoji um that it doesn't matter if she finds him or not because the thing that she really cared about was chasing him like the thing that she was really in love with was chasing him <laughs> yeah um, which and yeah and this is where i started to kind of be disappointed which but was here because here's the thing like her like i we we saw that before how her life is is the mo- is the movies and vice versa that she was in and and that's 
like the main point of that is that like the like the romance of the movie she was in these kind of classical romantic films is kind of just as superficial and like as as this great love of her life and it was is never about the person it was about this this yearning and this journey and this search and that's very, all very kind of thrilling and and romantic but it's there's nothing there because like she said like she at the end there's someone she's she met once like for five minutes yeah i see see i kind of read it a little bit differently as less about her specific character journey which does happen there but as because this is like super very very much sort of a navel gazy movie about movies um and i sort of read it as as a celebration while acknowledging the limitations of that sort of storytelling of of like drawing a parallel between her relationship with that man and like the collective audience of films relationship with these sorts of stories you know yeah i mean i understand that it just feels like like to make it to make it yeah so so meta instead of being about her like I don't know. I feel like it. it yeah, it, it ended it, like, like I think you'd agree. It ended up being about kind of this ability of of films to kind of create that. Yeah, because I think yearning about, yeah. and d- with with no with no kind of grounding that kind of yeah. just helpless helplessly romantic kind of yeah. Because um, that's sort of a fundamental thing about movies is that because they're only like ninety minutes long there's no room to tell to like build any kind of meaningful characters or anything like that so it's entirely like the entire power of movies rests on the fact that you can just sort of make a few hand gestures in the direction of a character and people will just be like okay i i get it exactly and but and yeah and so i and so yeah obviously you disagree but my feeling was that to kind of acknowledge that but then make your own character just that very kind of not a, no, just to at the very end almost to kind of confirm that even she is not a real character she's an archetype of this sort of romantic fantasy it felt like a cop-out i don't know i don't know i think that's the point is is, I'll be, is no i mean i'm sure it was the point but i don't like the point <laughs> I mean, like, like because I feel because I I don't think that this is a, a a film about how that limitation of movies is bad. I know it's not, but like, it felt, I guess, too uncritical. I don't know. I um, guess like this is a very sentimental movie. It it is. It's very. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of movies like this uh, that are sort of very sentimental about like the power of movies and about like movie making in general. And I. Yes, I have less of a desire than you for this movie to like really like dig into being critical about like movies generally. Yeah, I think I just felt so much like when when we fi- like when we find out that the soldier tortured and killed the artist, that was such a powerful moment and it was so well done and I felt like right there it was just like on the cusp of there was so much potential there. And then it, it just kind of, and then, and then immediately after, she, the, 
uh, Chiyoko's like, well, it doesn't matter because that was, it was the chase. And so it, 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 to me, it kind of pulled the rug out from under that, that moment um, and kind of squandered its potential. I guess I, 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 so what would you, and this is, this is sort of, I, I don't know if you'll have an answer to this question, but what sort of thing would you have preferred them to do? Some sort of, what, like, I mean, I, I thought maybe at the end of her telling her story, she would either make some tacit acknowledgement of kind of how she, some self-awareness of how she, of how she had been kind of living out this fantasy her whole life and maybe something would, would change. Or if, if, if it was too late for her, cause it, then some sort of reference to the fact that, that that was kind of a, that this, this, that, that cinematic life she led was unreal in a sense. Maybe I'm just annoyed because like, like you say, like, She's not a character. She's she's this archetype, yeah. and the yeah the moment when we find out about that the artist is tortured and murdered, and when she has the heart attack and dies, it seems like right then, like at least I felt that she was a character. Then, like that was there was enough emotion there. There was enough like powerful storytelling that I wanted a like a some sort of satisfying narrative arc for her, and then. And then, like, true to the movie as a whole, we didn't get one. But it felt like there, I was being, I was being given the hint of one that then I didn't get. Yeah. I guess, I guess part of the difference between you, your experience in this movie and my experience in this movie is that I was not as surprised that the artist had been dead the whole time. I don't know if I was surprised. It's just like the, that reveal was so well done that it, it is really it, well done. It, it did really affect me. Yeah, I, like this is my fourth or fifth time watching this movie, and it's still like every, that ending is just like, man, holy shit! Yeah. Every every yeah. single time, it is super emotionally effective every time, and I I never felt like the very end or the stuff that happens after that diminished the sort mm-hmm. of reveal in any way. Um, because I do think it's true. I think the thing that she's saying is true because it, like, that information that he was dead the whole time didn't, do- doesn't necessarily have any bearing on, like, like, her, her previous life. Or, or, how do I say this? Like, like, I, I do think that it's, that it is true for her or or it feels like a satisfying conclusion to me to her character arc of mm-hmm. her going from this sort of search for um this sort of search for this guy and thinking that that like her entire like possibility of having a happy future was tied up in this guy to realizing that actually it's tied up in her own life and that it had nothing to do with the guy or nothing really to do with the but guy what was her life other than kind of searching for this guy because I mean, she does a bunch of other stuff beside, like in the process of searching for this guy. Like she becomes a world, like a world, or at least Japan famous actor. Like, yeah. Like, like she li- she lives a whole life. Um, and I, I also, I do think that, um, it might be worth pointing out that I think that her realization for that character arc happens long before 
our realization or long before she says it on her deathbed like that's the reason mm. she retires from filmmaking is because mm. she goes to Hokkaido and she realizes this is never about him and then she goes yeah. back and she retires because she decides that she's done. And so, like, because yeah. the way that she says it on her deathbed, it doesn't sound to me like it's a realization she's coming to. It sounds no, to me, no, definitely yeah, not. It sounds to me like she's informing, informing the, informing uh, Tachibana and Kyoji of the thing that she already knew, and and informing them, and by proxy us, yeah, that like, I, yeah, she true. knows, she knows it's not. And we haven't actually summarized the the very very end. So oh yeah, so the very very she's, end is yeah. She's well, she on- after she after she says it's about the journey, and and then she says now I'll get to search for him again in the afterlife, yeah. uh, and and she can begin yeah. the quest all over again. Yeah, and there is an incredible match cut in Satoshi Kon style from um from her sort of lying in the hospital bed to her in the spacesuit in the spaceship and then it takes yeah, off yeah um uh, it's good as sh- it's good as hell it's so fucking good um because because that's that's like that when i because so much of this movie is is sort of put together because so much of, of what makes it very um very smooth and sort of everything sort of flows together so much is satoshi Kon's obsession with match cuts Mm-hmm. Um, because like, um, and this is, this is, this is what the, uh, or at least in large part what that every frame of painting video that I talked about at the beginning of this episode was about, it, it is, is about his, his obsession with match cuts and about his specifically like, because when people think of, of match cuts, generally they're thinking they're done as sort of like a one-off effect. And like the one that everybody always brings up is the like bone going to the spaceship in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Um, like that's I finally saw that movie. Remember? Oh Yeah. I didn't like it. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, so, like, that's the shot. And But, like, Satoshi Kon doesn't do that. He His whole style is that. Um, at, at least in this movie. In this movie, um, yeah. Well, because yeah, that's the point. Because yeah. we're, we're, we're flattening, like, yeah. present film and past into yeah. one thing. So, yeah. so those match cuts are perfect yeah. for... And this movie, this movie makes, it. is, like, definitely has the highest density of that, but it's also a stylistic work that he uses in Paprika oh, and in okay. Perfect Blue, yeah. um, and, and in, in, yeah, those are, those are the other two, <laughs> two movies of his that I've seen. But, like, it's, it's, it's definitely a thing of his style, and the, that every from a painting video points out that it is, it's very similar to the editing style, and this is part of why this definitely connects to William Actress in the George Roy Hill film adaptation of Slaughterhouse Five. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read Slaughterhouse Five? Nope. Um, so I adore Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, as will probably, as will probably come to no surprise to anyone, considering I adore this movie. Um, <laughs> And and what Slaughterhouse Five is about is it's about this this World War Two veteran who is uh, not at all uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut self insert. Um, oh wait, maybe I have read this. Yes, he's extremely. Go, go continue. Yeah, he's an extremely obvious Kurt Vonnegut self insert with some like minor details changed, um, uh, to for sort of thematic relevancy. Who from his it's the tallest first perspective and he describes himself as being unmoored from time and so he sort of like bounces around between the past and the present and the future um and sort of like his 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 life like after the war with like a family becoming an optometrist and like his life during the war where he is he is a a chaplain and he gets like he becomes a prisoner of war and is held in like the basement of a butcher shop in dresden 
Um, this is sounding is, familiar. Yes, which is a thing that actually happened to Kurt Vonnegut. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a World War II, he fought in World War II, and he became a prisoner of war and was held in uh, and was held in the basement of a butcher shop in Dresden uh, uh-huh. while when Dresden was firebombed. What a coincidence. Uh, and then, uh, and, and another, you know, so a bunch of like, uh, and also his name, the, the guys in the, in the, in the books, the protagonist of the book's name is Billy Pilgrim. He, when he like comes, when like the firebombing is over, a thing that happens to both Billy Pilgrim and to Kurt Vonnegut is that they are sort of forced by the, the Nazis to like clean up the charred bodies left over. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so, and it sort of bounces between, and the bounces between all these different times, and the way that um, George Roy Hill adapts this into film is with match cuts, is is in this exact same way of of sort of either intercutting time periods that mirror each other, um, or um, doing like exact graphic matches where like he represents sort of like the time tripping thing that uh, that Billy Pilgrim does where he'll be in one time and then suddenly be in another time by just having, like, oh, suddenly there's a match cut where, like, an actor will cut to the same shot of the same angle of the actor doing the same doing the same gesture in a completely different time and place. Hmm. Um, and Satoshi Kon, in, especially in this movie, does very much the exact same thing of making judicious use of these match cuts to sort of cut together things that are thematically related. It is it is the Kuleshov effect turned up to a billion. And <laughs> um, for our for our listening audience, if you do not know what the Kuleshov effect is, Lev Kuleshov was a Soviet filmmaker in the very early 20th century, and he uh, taught at a Soviet film school, and he came up with this idea and this exercise where he... Um, he had this sort of face with a neutral expression that he would then cut looking at various objects. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't know and, that. That's what it was called. Yes. So, so it's just like neutral face cut to looking at a plate of food or looking at some soldiers fighting or looking at whatever. And the, the idea was that like the students that he showed this, this example to would project onto the face the emotions that made sense for if that face were looking at the thing that it just showed the face looking at. Um, and it's sort of like the fundamental like uh, technique. And the, the Kuleshov effect is basically just that more meaning is created by the juxtaposition of two shots than by any single shot alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's the, the sort of the foundation of basically every cinematic technique, but especially stuff like shot reverse shot, um, where you show a character's face and then you show a shot of what they're looking at. And then you show a shot back of the character's face. Uh, and those things, it's just kind of one of the most kind of fundamental insights about like the medium, which is that unlike theater or like other like arts, like, um, art media that, you can yeah you can flip between flip between things and create meaning by that juxtaposition yeah and so it, the, and, the person and, looking at the apple would they would say oh this is they're hungry because they're, they're looking at this apple yeah. and looking at the, the the soldiers what i don't know what what did they yeah, think when they saw feel the soldiers? some kind of tragedy or something or something like that yeah um or project whatever emotion you want onto that face and like that and it seems super obvious to point it out now because like duh that's just how movies work but if you're in like 19 well tell that to <laughs> most movies now at first yeah um seem but to like have forgotten but um if you if you go all the way back to you know the very early 20th century the earliest days of movies like people were still figuring this stuff out 
Yeah, um, I mean, and yeah. and it's part of the reason why I get really uh, angry when people jerk off too much over really over long takes. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. don't get me wrong, I love long takes. Um, I love a good long take. Um, but and know but, what you're giving up. Yeah, know what you know what you're giving up, and and know why you're doing it. You know, and that's what yeah. like yeah. like somebody who's really well known for long takes is like Alfonso Cuarón, and he knows what he's doing. He know he doesn't like his movies aren't entirely long takes. There are also like more conventionally stopped sequences and he does long takes for specific aesthetic reasons. Um, and like, like the, the whole long take thing has a really long history. And one of the most interesting sort of parts of it is like people, there have been a number of attempts to, uh, shoot an entire movie in one take. And one of the best known of these is the Alfred Hitchcock film rope. Um, and rope is this like heist movie. Um, that shot entirely in one take and because uh film rolls at that time couldn't hold 90 minutes of film they like <laughs> there are some cuts but they're all disguised by like pushing the camera like into a character's back and then pushing it back out again um <laughs> to like wipe the screen right. um and but the thing is is that um and there's also uh touch of evil which is a uh orson welles film that also has uh and it begins with an extremely long take mm-hmm. um and the the thing, and like both of those movies were kind of the beginning of audiences and film critics beginning to notice and jerk off over these these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> but a thing that's really notable about, especially Hitchcock after Rope, is that he never made another movie like that. And in interviews, he's talked about how like what he realized after making Rope was that if you were to do an entire movie in one shot, you would lose what's powerful about movies yeah you know um and that, and that there's a reason why most movies aren't done in one in one take and it's not just because it's hard to do it's also because it's not what you want right just go to go watch a play yeah like, that's like like that's what plays are not not i mean not to take anything away from theater like oh, that's yeah, theater's a, awesome like it's just there are strengths and weaknesses to each medium yeah but yeah um millennium actress is is and all of Satoshi Kon's films are great because he really understands the power of editing. He really understands, like, the power of juxtaposing shots and the power of, of constructing moving images out of out of shorter sequences, um, yeah. which is just really uncommon these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's part of the reason why I don't watch too many movies is because... You know, they're so bad. many they're bad. They're bad. So many of them are shot really boringly. You know, they're they're shot really. You know, and I th- I've, I think about this every time a new a new Marvel movie comes out. And as we are speaking, uh, the the Avengers Endgame has just been released this past weekend, I believe. Right. Um, right. And I think about it every time one of those movies comes out because I haven't seen one of them since the first Avengers movie, which I was, and I was not that old when that movie came out. Um, mm-hmm. I was an idiot. And I, even <laughs> I walked out of that movie being like, that was boring as shit, and I'll never watch another one of these. <laughs> the, um, only one apparently, the only one I've seen is the one because it had Kate Blanchett in it. I think we've been over this before. Probably. Probably on the And street. you were like, that's the most you thing ever. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, probably on the show it- we've talked about that. Um, oh, I saw yeah. a good movie recently. Oh, it's incredible! Like I hate movies, and I saw <laughs> a movie that not only made me cry, but like was actually a goddamn good movie, which is Mustang. Ooh. This 2015 movie um, set in Turkey about these five sisters who uh, 
who are goofing off with some boys on a beach and then their extremely conservative grandparents find out and basically imprison them in the house wow. until they can marry them off. And it's it's the rest of the movie is just about how these five girls, how they try and sometimes fail to kind of survive and escape this house. That's, it's incredible. That's good. I should I should watch that. Um, but yeah, like like I but I I do think about this every time every time a new a new especially the Marvel movies come out because even uh the ones of those that I've enjoyed which uh are limited to the two Guardians of the Galaxy films uh and nothing else. I still would not call them, like, cinematically interesting, you know? <laughs> know? Like, the reason I like Guardians of the Galaxy is because it is, you know, more stylish than the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is an unbelievably low bar. <laughs> um, and, you know, I... I yeah, I, I think that they're... I, I like that they're dis largely disconnected from the rest of the Marvel Universe, because I mm -hmm. think shared, shared universes are dumb. And I like the stories that they tell. But, like, every time... Those movies, I would describe them pr primarily as functional. You know? They are shot in the way... <laughs> in the way that you shoot a movie. Yeah. Um, you know? Like, they are they are shot by somebody who... You know, they, 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 they feel like they are made by somebody who got a solid B on every project they did in film school. <laughs> um, or someone just who kind of got their start doing like ads yeah yeah um oh i i wouldn't i wouldn't denigrate people who got their start doing ads too too much okay so you start got their start doing ads and didn't learn yeah so basically anybody who got their start doing, doing ads it is not david fincher <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 sure. you david fincher you get off from the animators for jerks hit list oh no I, like I'll I, like like say what you will about <laughs> like Fight Club. It like the techniques are yeah. pretty yeah pretty. You impressive. get off of the of of the hit list because you made Fight Club and Zodiac, um, <laughs> but everybody else, Tony Scott, I'm after you. I know you're dead, but you're the only other you're the only other filmmaker I can think of that did did, did ads. <laughs> um, off the top of my head, I'm sure most of them. Yes, honestly. but I specifically know Tony Scott because he worked at Propaganda Films, which is the ad uh, production company that David Fincher worked at, and that also uh, Michael Bay worked at. Uh, um, and Michael Bay is definitely the one where it's most obvious that he made ads. Uh, anyway, we've we've gone out, we've we've gone wildly off topic, and I I don't think we don't, do we even have time for. We have, time to do whatever. we have time to do whatever. We're definitely going to have time when I cut out all that bullshit we just said that wasn't... No, awful. that was fun. <laughs> that was, was good fun. bullshit. Not, it was banter. Gonna, I'm not going to cut what it out. What do you think people come here for? What do people... <laughs> yeah, the top banks. Uh, and anyway, like, it, this wasn't, like, a bad movie, so it feels kind of low to kind of go find shitty reviews to laugh at. Um, um, should we talk about books? We can. I've been scrolling through the My Animalist reviews. They're not that funny. Most people who no. most people who watch this movie and then go to review it, either get it or don't. Yeah. 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 They either get it or don't. Or uh, most of them aren't. Yeah, they're not that. They're not entertainingly badly written. I figure. 
I mean, this isn't, yeah, you're not going to get, like, Although, paprika here's a very good level. sentence that begins. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Review, it says, I give this an 8. Breaking it down, it adds up to a low 9. I want to give it a 9, <laughs> but it's a very strong 8. After some thought, I think this is why. <laughs> this guy worked for, like, 2002 GameSpot. What do you mean add, it adds up to a low 9? Do you have some elaborate system for calculating? Replayability, sound, yeah. uh, gameplay. Reviewer's tilt. Yeah, it's exactly like... like Every time I think, like, oh, games journalism is, is complete trash, I just remember that, like... GameSpot used to have this elaborate mathematic system for mathematically calculating what 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 score a game should get that like incorporated like five different things. My favorite my favorite thing about that is that that system was developed while Jeff Gershman was at GameSpot, um, uh-huh. and him and and Ryan Davis were really pushing for them to just have a five star system, and they were uh-huh. like, no, we have to have it out of ten, and they were like, fine, fuck it, and they just designed the most Byzantine complicated rating system they possibly could because they couldn't have what they wanted. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's so good. Anyway, um, so what book would you like to recommend this week, Let's Alex? Let's see. Well, I'm halfway through Elena Ferrante's gigantic thing. Um, so she has a, uh, well, a four book like series, but it's really just one 1500 word 1500 page novel uh the first one's my brilliant the first one's my brilliant friend which i think the miniseries is named after um so i finished two of the of the books it's 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 very good it's 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 obviously long and it drags in places especially the the first book unfortunately um it's about the, the narrator is this woman, Elena. The author is pseudonymous, like Elena Ferrante isn't her real name. Um, and it's Elena and her friendship with this other girl, uh, Lila. And basically their long and kind of fraught relationship throughout their entire life. So it can be difficult to get into because it starts when they're like eight or whatever and the, the first book goes from then until they're 16 the second book is from 16 to early 20s and then so it's just a very kind of long and almost i want to say it's it's it, I, what's the word kind of like a excavation of their relationship so it's very kind of detailed and kind of trying to understand like how how they how they ended up so often at odds and how how their relationship developed and how they fought and how they like made up um and so it wouldn't be something i would keep on if if just wasn't the characters were so well drawn and the and like the places and the drama was so just kind of realistic but it's very good all right so so what was the what was the name of that book Say it again. So, well, the the series is called like the Neapolitan novels because it's all set in Naples. The first one is My Brilliant Friend. The second one is The Story of a New Name, and I forget the third and fourth ones. All right, so that's that's uh, the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. Um, 
So I am going to endorse uh, also a, a novel by an Italian person, uh, but basically the complete polar opposite of that. <gasps> uh, I'm going to endorse Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. Um, so, uh, Italo Calvino is, uh, an Italian novelist, uh, he also wrote a book called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler that I love. Oh, I've heard uh, of that. And, and he's written a bunch of stuff, but If on a Winter's Night a Traveler and Invisible Cities are his two most well-known books. Um, and I only read Invisible Cities very recently, and I wish, it feels like I wish this book had been in my life a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. So it is a- essentially a sort of take on, it is inspired by and formatted in the same way as, um, God, what's the, so yeah, so it is, it is formatted similarly to and heavily inspired by the travels of Marco Polo, um, oh. which is by Marco Polo and it is a book, <laughs> um, and I'm, it sounds like some sort of self-insert bullshit to me. Yeah, and so if you, <laughs> so if you, if you know, uh, I assume that everybody knows who Marco Polo is. But if you don't, he was like a uh, an explorer merchant guy from asshole like the, from like the 13th century. Um, and so invisible, so invisible cities is is sort of structured in in, in a very similar way and inspired very similarly by and, and is. Um, so there are these these the, it, there are these interlude chapters that are written as conversations between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo, um, huh. talking about um, Marco Polo's journeys. And then there are these like the sort of main chapters are these completely disconnected from each other descriptions of fictional cities, um, and and they're all really short. Um, they're all, they're all really short, like one, one to three pages, like three pages max. Like most of them are one, one and a half pages. Um, and so it'll just be like the, it'll, it'll just be like, okay, so if you find, uh, you know, the city, the city, uh, Armilla, which has nothing that makes it seem like a city except the water pipes that rise vertically where the houses should be and spread out horizontally where the floors should be. (laughs) Um, and like all of these other sorts of just like completely absurd cities, um, of just like, okay, here's a city where every person ties a string to the house of every other person in the city with a color according to the relationship that they have with them. Um, <laughs> and then when all of the, when there are too many strings for anybody to get around anymore, everybody packs up and abandons the city and starts a new one. Um, and, and just tons and tons of stuff like that. Um, of 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 just these like absurd city concepts that range from completely absurd like that to slightly less absurd but still wild, um, and just some of the most inventive, descriptive writing, like short writing that you can f- possibly find. It's extremely short. It's 165 pages. Um, so which is why I say which is why I say it's the exact opposite of, of say, your book yeah. is that it's extremely short and it has no characters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, these these ones have a whole couple pages at the beginning laying out the different families and all their family memberships. Yeah, and so so I love Invisible Cities. It is any anybody who knows me will immediately know that this is exactly my kind of shit. Oh yeah, that sounds uh, like your shit. Up of, the ass. of just like 
these like extremely evocative sketches of just like wild places um, <laughs> interspersed with these these sort of conversations between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo about like the nature of explorership and the nature of discovery what constitutes a city um like like what constitutes a place that people live like what whether or not Marco Polo is making all of these cities up and whether or not that matters um and it, it's it's great it's god incredible. that's your shit it's so it's so my shit it is it is the most postmodern thing and i love it um, i love it the same way that i love the domino's pizza rolex um <laughs> Well, not the same way that I love the Domino's Pizza Roll. They're both postmodern, but in very different senses of the word. Um, oh, good God. So a city Alan, in which everyone is born with a Domino's Rolex. Uh, so, um, Alex, so, you what are, are we going to watch next who time? Gets to, you are the one who gets to decide what we are going to watch next month. So, yeah. Uh, a month afterwards, so two months yes. from now, is when we're going to finally get to the point of this whole podcast yes, we're which gonna is watch neon genesis evangelion but in the meantime we're gonna do some training to get used to a long series so i'm gonna make you watch noir you're gonna make me watch noir okay which is oh. which is a 24 episode uh or 26 is it i don't know it doesn't matter uh sort of early crime anime i think it's 2000 it's it has episodic elements that reminded me of cowboy bebop um the overarching plot is kind of bullshit and you'll probably hate it but i think you'll at least really love some of the episodes and i know at least you'll appreciate the music so we'll get something out of it at the very least so that's that's noir it's directed by koichi mashimo according to wikipedia um and we're gonna be watching that next month i'm gonna have to set aside some time to watch this whole series um so yeah Thanks everybody for listening to us bullshit. Uh, I was I was worried that this episode would come in under time. That worry was unfounded. We padded um, it a little bit. <laughs> we padded it with our with our horse shit. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad it was because this was by far the best thing we've seen so far. So yes. it's good that we kind of were able to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Even if I even if I was disappointed, I I I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah goodbye everyone we'll see you next month wait wait where can we find you Cass? Oh, yeah. on right. the internet Fuck. online oh god Ugh. I'm, I'm such a bad podcast host uh, no that was a calculated delay so we can get hit that 120 mark uh, you can find me on twitter at profit underscore goddess uh, you can find me on Mastodon at profit underscore goddess at skeleton dot cool I almost said it selfie dot army which is not my <laughs> domain. Uh, uh, should I should I should I, uh, should I uh, open up new registrations? No. <laughs> I am on selfie.army, Catalina dot or at selfie.army, selfie spelled with a Y. On Twitter, I'm done done done. That's my last name, D U N N. And where can this podcast be found, Cass? Uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter at twitter.com slash anime is for jerks. And you can find it on Mastodon at anime is for jerks at skeleton.cool. Uh, yeah. That's it. That's actually it. Now this podcast is over. You are free <laughs> from our torment. Uh, Good night, Cass. Good night, Cass.